I want to title this uh, message, and don't run for the exit doors when you hear it. The resurrection proves it. Jesus was not a good guy. Hang on. Jesus was not a good guy. Here's where I'm coming at with this. A couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with a guy down at uh, this campus that I was uh, at as I was debating this, this atheist that I talked about several weeks ago. And uh, this person, I've had this kind of conversation numerous times, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times with different people. And the conversation went something like this. He said, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not like an atheist like these other uh, people that you debate. I, I believe in God. I think God is love and, and I, I worship God. And I even have the utmost respect for Jesus Christ. I, his teachings are, I think, the most insightful of all teachings that humans have ever gave. Uh, a great code of ethics to live by. He was a great moral teacher and very insightful. And so I, I, I reverence him and I worship God. But what bugs me, he said, what really, really, really irritates me is that you Christians um, go beyond that. You just get kind of fanatical and, and, and you start to worship him. I mean, you treat him like he was God. And uh, that's what causes all the problems. I mean, the reason why uh, you think he's, he's different in kind than any other human teacher. But there's been a lot of great human teachers throughout history, and they've all got something to teach us. You know, you've got Gandhi, and you've got uh, Siddhartha Buddha, and you've got Lao Tzu, and you've got Muhammad, and all these great teachers. But you Christians just got to think that Jesus is, is, is way up there above all the rest. And what I explained to this man and what I'm going to be explaining a little bit here today, and it's important because so many in our, our culture have this idea. Yes, Jesus is great, you know, and God is real, uh, but he's, he's not different in kind than other great religious teachers. And I'm not out to bash other great religious teachers. Some of their teachings are great. My concern is that we put Jesus on the same level as them. It's a widespread cultural assumption that Jesus maybe is a little bit different in, 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 in degree uh, than, than other teachers, but he's not different in kind. He's right up there with all the great religious teachers. Got a lot of insight, a lot of spiritual stuff to say, but he's not different in kind. And you see, if that is your, your, your idea, if that's an assumption that you have, then the level of commitment that you'll give to the kingdom of God, to Jesus Christ, will not be different in kind than the kind of commitment you give to everything else. You might, you might go to church once in a while. You might occasionally even crack your Bible. Perhaps you'll pray now and then. But Jesus won't be the center of your existence. He won't be the, 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 the fundamental heartbeat of what you're about. The idea that is that Jesus is, is a great moral teacher. What I want to submit to you this morning is that Jesus is not a great moral teacher. If you think he's a great moral teacher, you've misunderstood him. He is either far worse than the great religious teachers of history, or he's far better and of a different kind altogether. And you'll see where this comes, how the resurrection ties into this uh, a little bit later on. I want to give here 15 facts out of the Bible. 15 things that Jesus said that proves he was not a good guy. He was either off his rocker and maybe even a blasphemer, or he was, in fact, not an ordinary guy at all. He was the Lord God. Jesus says things like this. Fact number one, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. You say, what's so weird about that? Well, what's weird about it is he said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. Great religious teachers never bring attention to themselves. Great religious teachers deflect attention to God. So it's normal to hear things like, blessed are you when you're persecuted for God's sake, or maybe even blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. But no one goes around saying, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. Jesus assumes his disciples are going to be persecuted, 
And he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. There's something weird going on here. Fact number two, he goes around telling people their sins are forgiven. Now, you can't forgive sins. I can't forgive your sins. You can only forgive wrongs that are done to you. That's why only God can forgive other people's sins, because all sin is against God. But Jesus goes around saying, blessed, blessed are you, your sins are forgiven. Who do you think you are, God? Yeah. You see, this isn't a, the mentality of a good religious teacher. He says, you've heard it said unto you in the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you shall commit adultery and things like that. He says, you've heard it said unto you, but I say unto you this. And he goes beyond the teaching of the Old Testament. In fact, he says on several occasions, I give you a new commandment. Now, Jesus believes, and everybody he's talking to believes, the Jewish culture in the first century, they all believe that the Old Testament is given by Yahweh, by God. It's inspired. But here Jesus is quoting the Old Testament and then adding to it. What's with this guy? Putting his own word on a par with the word of the Old Testament, which he himself believes is from God. He says things like this, fact number four. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. Think about this for a little bit. Maybe we've heard it too much. We don't, we, we don't grasp the full radicalness of this. What would you think of me if I said, congregation, I have an announcement here with my new $17 suit. Nobody here or even on the planet knows God except for Greg. And no one really even knows Greg except for God. Sorry, but true. Now, you could walk out of here saying, this guy is really loony. Or this guy is really evil. But you wouldn't go out, out, out of here saying, well, great lessons to live by. You see, great moral teacher right up there with Gandhi. You see, Jesus shifts the game rules completely. Nobody knows the Father except the Son. Who does this guy think that he is? He says things like this, Father, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world began. Apparently, he didn't think his existence started with Mary. He had a pre-existence, and, and it was in the glory of the Father. Then he says, I've come down from heaven. What would you think of me if I said, the reason I've come down from heaven is to teach all of you. Oh, really, the rest of us were born. <laughs> Sorry. It's a, he's putting himself in a different category altogether. He says that, that he is the judge of the world. He portrays himself as the judge of the world. On the final judgment day, people are going to stand before me. And I will decide who goes into the kingdom of God and who doesn't. Who does this guy think that he is? He claims to be the way and the truth and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the light of the world. What do you think of me if I said that? I'm not a light. I am the light. I'm not teaching you a way. I'm not even teaching you the way. I am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the, the life. You see, Jesus, you've got you, you to gotta make a decision here. Either this guy is a megalomaniac, maybe possessed, or in fact, he's in an entirely different category from all other religious teachers. I'm just getting warmed up here. He says, The dead shall hear my voice and they shall rise. I give life to whomever I please. This is Jesus Christ talking now. This isn't the way good rabbis speak in the first century. The dead will rise when they hear my voice and I'll give, I'll give eternal life to whomever I please. Really? Tell us more about this. He says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Really? Jesus taught people to pray in His name. Now, th this, is just, this is just crazy. Uh, 
What would you think of me if I said, okay, here's a new, te- here's a new teaching. When you pray, I want you to pray in Greg's name, all right? Father, I come to you in Greg's name. Yes, and I, I beseech you in Greg's name. And I cast out demons in Greg's name. It kind of loses something there, doesn't it? It doesn't have the same power. It's just isn't, it's just not working. But Jesus says that. Pray in my name, and the Father will hear you. Who does this guy think that he is? He said, everybody, I love this verse. This is the, one of the ones I, whenever I... Uh, See, Jehovah Witnesses coming to my door. I get excited. <laughs> they don't come anymore, though. But here's the verse. You know, they, they think Jesus is, is, a, is an angel. Wonderful. Um, but Jesus said this, I, All should honor the Son. I have come that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. All should, in fact, no one honors the Father unless they honor the Son. Enter into just how arrogant this is if he's not telling the truth. You know, guys, I, I want a little respect now. You, you know, I, I'm wearing a suit to try to get some respect from you, and I, and I want you, I'm a bona fide. I, with this suit, I am a bona fide preacher. Bona fide. And I want some respect, a little R E S P E C T. Is that too much to ask? Why don't you just, like, from now on, why don't you honor me the way you'd honor mm, the Supreme Being? That's all I'm asking. God. Is that too much to ask? In fact, I'll tell you this. You don't even honor God unless you honor me like God. <laughs> you should be. Man, you should be rolling on the floor right now. You've got to be kidding. You see, but this is what Jesus is claiming. This is not, the, you wouldn't walk away from someone saying this, saying, oh, this will help me live, a, 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 be a good citizen and help me just, you know, vote right. right. The teachings aren't structured to do that. You either got to be incredibly offended by this or you bow your knee. To him, you see, he calls for a radical decision. He says this, Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father. You've been talking about the Father for so long. Will you just show us the Father? And if you show us the Father, then we'll be satisfied. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been so long with you and yet you don't know me? If you see me, you see the Father. Whoa! Man, this takes the cake. Greg, Pastor Greg, will you, will you show us God? You've been talking about God for years. Will you just show us God? And then I go, all right. Here I am. What do you think? You see, this is just incredible, radical, mind-boggling stuff. Jesus accepts worship. He, accepts, he inspires worship and He accepts worship. Now, the most fundamental rule of the Bible is that only God is worthy of worship. That's, that goes from A to Z in the Bible. Only God is worthy of worship. And that's why throughout the Bible, whenever a human being is being worshipped, if they know anything, they stop it. Uh, some people try to have some pagans. They, they thought Paul was divine. They start to worship Paul in the book of Acts. And Paul says, knock it off. I'm just a human being like you. Cornelius, this pagan, he, he, he thinks that Peter is the Savior, so he falls down and starts to worship Peter. And Peter says, knock it off. I'm just a servant like you. Don't do this. In fact, in the book of Revelation, here's another good one for Jehovah Witnesses, uh, uh, Paul, or, uh, John starts to worship an angel. And the angel, and it comes out really clear in the Greek, the angel is scared. And he goes, knock it off. Man, you're going to get me in some serious trouble. You keep that up. I am not going to enter into competition with God. You see, angels don't accept worship. But it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, that when the Lord brings in His first begotten into the world, He says, let all the angels of God worship Him. You see, angels don't get worship, but they do worship. And when they start to worship, what they worship is the Son of God. Because He's worthy of all worship, amen? He's worthy of all praise. Jesus shows up on the, on the, after the resurrection. He shows up to Thomas, who was doubting uh, that He rose from the dead. And uh, he, he appears before Thomas, and Thomas says, 
Uh, John chapter 20, verse 28. He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't go, whoa. Getting a little carried away here, a little fanatical. You know, I'm just, I'm just another Gandhi here, okay? He doesn't do that. Jesus said, blessed are you, for you have seen and believed. But blessed are those also who haven't seen and yet still believe. Jesus calls it a confession of faith. He accepts that title, my Lord and my God. And the reason is, it's because he is the Lord and he is God. Thomas got it right, praise God. You see, if he's not who he says he is, then he's far, far worse than any ordinary human being. He's demented at best. He's a blasphemer at, at, at worst. And this is why the, the, the Bible, throughout the Bible, in the New Testament, you find that they call Jesus God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's talking about Jesus Christ. Paul says he's, the, he, he's God over all, blessed forever. In Titus it says he's our great God and Savior over and over again. They title Jesus God. They give Him the, the functions of God. And he's the one who inspired that. This is not the way good, ordinary, wise, spiritual human beings talk. It is the way some lunatics talk. It maybe is the way some charlatans who are evil talk. But it's not the way good, wise teachers talk. You can hear the words of Jesus and you either can conclude that he's off his rocker, demented and maybe evil, or you bow your knee and you say, I believe. Here's a question that you've got to ask. What could have convinced the early disciples that Jesus was not demented, off his rocker and evil, but was rather who he said he was? First century Jews, they believed that they believed anything. They woke up every morning and they'd recite the Shema Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And they believed that God was up there, God was transcendent. Human beings were down here and never the two shall meet. The pagans, the Romans, and others, they would sometimes worship a human being as God, but Jews never would. It was against everything that they believed. It was against their entire culture. So the question is this. How did Jesus convince these disciples against everything their culture said, everything their religion said, how did Jesus convince them that in fact he was telling the truth when he says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, when he says, I've come down from heaven, when he says that I am the great I am? How did Jesus convince them? His miracles made a good impression. He did a lot of miracles, and, and that really made an impression. But that wasn't what finally convinced them. His life was incredible. It was unprecedented. No one I know of is going to die with the reputation of never having sinned, but Jesus did. That made a great impression, but that didn't convince them either. To convince a bunch of monotheistic Jews in the first century that, that, that this Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was, well, it takes something like rising from the dead. And in fact, this is what the early disciples say convinced them. It was the final demonstration of the truthfulness of, 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 of uh, uh, what Jesus was saying. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. The word declare there means to demonstrate, to prove. God verifies. He puts a stamp of approval. He gives the evidence for, for Jesus being the Son of God by rising Him up from the dead. This is what convinced them. And it would have taken something like this to fully convince them of the truthfulness of the claims of Jesus Christ. It says this in the book of Acts, that Jesus appeared. After having suffered, He presented Himself alive to them with many convincing proofs. 
These weren't nitwits who were just credulous who believed anything. They needed many convincing proofs. So Jesus showed them this for 40 days. He hung out with them after he rose from the dead, teaching them about the kingdom of God. This is what they believed, and this is what they preached. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he says this, Fellow Israelites, I say to you confidently of our ancestor David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. You all know David. He's great. We all like David, but he's dead. And his tomb is with us to this day. If you're doubting it, go check the tomb. But Jesus, this Jesus I'm telling you about, his tomb, unlike David, his tomb's not with us to this day. His tomb is empty. He's not there any longer. He's been raised from the dead, and of this we are all witnesses. And with this proclamation, the early disciples were willing to lay down their life. They were willing to just devote themselves wholly and exclusively to this cause. He is not here, as the angel said. He has risen. Praise God. And this means that the claims that he made, as outrageous as they were, in fact, were true. Now, the question you've got to ask is this, and this is the question that I know they won't address tonight on this special. Don't go to the special. Go to the Sunday night church service. It'll do your soul more, more good. But if you are watching it, remember this question. How, if you don't believe this, if you don't think he did rise from the dead, then what is your explanation for the, for the faith of the disciples? for the proclamation of the disciples, for the fact that they were convinced that he did rise from the dead. You really only got two options here. Let's think on them. Option number one, they were lying. They were lying. They made the whole thing up. It's a fabrication. It's a story. It's a conspiracy. Fine. But if you're going to believe that, you've got to answer this question. Why would anybody in their right mind do this? It wasn't like that they got rich. It wasn't like you know, Scientology or something where you're going to get rich and, and, and you know, you make a lot of money off of some Hollywood movie stars because of this new doctrine you're preaching. They knew that this doctrine was not going to be popular. They knew that there would be a lot of people that would oppose it. They knew very likely it would cost them their lives, and it did. Why would they get together and say, hey, you know what? Jesus died. We're really bummed out about this, but I tell you what. Let's just tell people that he rose from the dead. Yeah, this is, okay, he rose and, and, and he appeared for 40 days. He appeared 40 days. And, and, and uh, yeah, we'll just go preach that and, and, and we'll say he's the Savior. And then we can get killed. Oh, wow, that'd be great. We'll get persecuted and our kids will get fed to lions. Whoa, what an idea. You see, there's no motive here. There's just no reason why they would do this. There's nothing that would, if you could come up with a motive, you might have, you might possibly have a case, though I doubt it. But there is no motive. It's a, it's, it's a guess in the dark. But not only that, if they did lie, are you telling me that then when persecution broke out and, and, and they did get fed to lions and they had to watch their children get fed to lions and they were burned alive at, on, on, on stakes, that none of them broke, none of them cracked, they all held to the story to the bitter, bitter end? Give me a break. It's surprising that some didn't just you know, say, hey, you know what, you guys, we made it up. Uh, it, it was a lie. It was a joke. It was, it was, come on. We always having a good time. But no one did that. It wouldn't be surprising if someone did do that just because they wanted to save their own skin. But no one did that. You know, in the Book of Mormon, I don't mean to be talking about all these other religions this morning, but it's kind of coming to me. Uh, they, they talk about the three witnesses that saw the, the, the gold tablets given to Joseph Smith. You know, one, three witnesses. And that proves that this really happened. But when persecution broke out against the Mormons in the mid-19th century, two of the three witnesses recanted. Okay, it didn't happen, all right? It didn't happen. So that's what you expect. That's what you, people don't die for a lie. The disciples were willing to die, and that tells you that they were not lying. And even if they were lying, explain the empty tomb. I mean, how they get the body out uh, to support their lie. And like someone's got a corpse in the garage, and they're out there lying to the, to, to, to the world, getting crucified for it. It just doesn't fly. Whatever else you think of the disciples, they weren't lying. 
Well, you have another option. This is, you're down to your last option here. If you don't want to bow your knee to Jesus Christ, maybe, maybe you just want to say that they were wrong. You know, they were sincere. Yes, they really believed it, but they were mistaken. You know, you get sincere fanatics who die for their faith all the time. The disciples were, 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 were just like that. So, so they just were sincerely mistaken. Fine. But now you've got to explain this. How did they get mistaken about this? Think about it. This isn't a story that happened once upon a time, long, long ago, and far, far away in some remote corner of the galaxy, like Star Wars. This happened a little bit ago. It happened in Galilee. It, it happened in the same vicinity of the people that they're preaching to. Uh, the mother of Jesus is still alive. James is still alive. The disciples are still alive. How, you know, I can understand how fish stories get bigger and bigger and bigger over time. I can understand how legends develop. There's no problem there. But those things take a lot of generations, ordinarily, before they develop. You're not, you don't have that kind of time and you don't have that kind of environment. And there's plenty of people around who could keep stories in check. There's the, the, the disciples of Jesus for one thing, the mother and the brother of Jesus for another thing. But there's also the opponents of Jesus who would be the first ones to say, you're making that up. He didn't do those miracles. He didn't rise from the dead. What are you guys talking about? The interesting thing is that in the polemics between the Jews and the Christians, both sides agree that the tomb is empty, and both sides agree that Jesus did miracle. The only question is, did he do it by the power of God, or did he do it by uh, the power of Satan? But no one claims that the whole thing was just made up. You don't have time for that. Well, maybe they were hallucinating, some people hold. In fact, John Dominic Crossan says it was a hallucination. You know, they, they were so struck in with grief that they just hallucinated seeing Jesus. Well, 40 days, that's one heck of a hallucination. I mean, come on. I mean, it's, it, I don't know any drug that does that, all right? There's one guy, actually, who, who claims that the, this, <laughs> this shows you how far they're willing to go to come up with an explanation. John Allegro says that the disciples are strung out on hallucinogenic mushrooms that were growing in Galilee at the time. <laughs> hey, Peter, give me another one of those mushrooms. I want to see Jesus again. Yeah. Sorry, folks, it just doesn't cut it. And how many hallucinations do you know of fellowship and give teachings and eat breakfast with the people that are having them? And even if, it, even if you think it was a hallucination, you think about this now. If it was a hallucination, were all of the disciples just too doggone stupid, having an IQ of negative four, that they didn't think about going and checking it out to verify it? Is this real or is this a hallucination? I don't know. Let's go check the tomb. None of them thought of that. And even if they were so stupid, they wouldn't have thought about it. Are you saying that none of the opponents of Jesus would have ever thought about it? They saw this Christianity thing as a, as a weird Jewish cult, and they wanted to squish it. Certainly they would have refuted it. The fact that they didn't shows, proves that they couldn't, which shows you that this was not some hallucination. They weren't lying, and this wasn't a hallucination. And now we're down to one alternative. And that is that they was telling the truth. They were telling the truth. It's hard to believe. A guy raising from the dead claims that Jesus made. It is, it is exceptional. It's, it's, but you know what? It takes more faith. And you're wagering everything on this. More faith to believe that it didn't happen than to believe that it did happen. You want to put all your faith in a hallucination theory? Good luck. You want to put all your faith into a lying theory? Good luck. But I'm telling you, it's, it, it's, it's groundless. All of the thinking in the world, the evidence in the world, suggests that, in fact, the disciples were telling the truth. The reason they say he did miracles is because, you know what? He did miracles. The reason they say that he lived the life he lived is because, in fact, he did live, live a sinless life. And the reason they say he rose from the dead is because, as a matter of fact, Jesus did rise from the dead. They're telling it straight. That's why they're willing to die for it. He's alive. It's true. It's real. This isn't some story we're telling here. 
Now, some story. Now, this changes everything. It changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. Here's what it means. It means, number one, it means that Jesus is not a lunatic, and it means that Jesus is not a blasphemer. It means that Jesus Christ, rather, is who He said He was. He is Lord. Amen? He is Lord. The resurrection declares it. The resurrection proclaims it. The truth that He was saying is, in fact, true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He has come down from, from the Father. He was glorified with the Father before the world began. He is the great I Am. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Word of God. Amen? He's the Savior. He's the Judge. He's the Creator. He's God Almighty. He's the Shekinah glory of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the love of God right here on earth. He's all those things and more. Lily of the valley, bright and morning star. He is the all in all. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. It is true. He is Lord. He reigns supreme. The resurrection demonstrates it, which means number two. It means that if he is in fact Lord God Almighty, he is worthy of our all. Worthy of our all. You might have a casual relationship with, with great religious teachers. You might have an acquaintance relationship with, with certain, uh, you know, spiritually insightful books and things like that. That's normal. That's good. I encourage it, you know, but, but that's an acquaintance thing. Yeah, I like to read Gandhi now and then, and Buddha's got some insights, and Lao Tzu and others. You know, there's this good stuff that is there. But it's an acquaintance kind of a relationship. That's normal. But when we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, something radically, radically, radically different is called for. An acquaintance relationship will not do. If God Almighty, look at what we're, we're, we're saying here. God Almighty, I'm talking about God, capital G, Creator, capital C, Lord, capital L, the, 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 the one who created the cosmos, the one who holds all things into existence. He became a human being. And if, if, if he took the trouble to become a human being, born in a little manger, dying on the tree, if he took the trouble to die on the cross for our sins, if he took the trouble to incarnate himself and then rise from the dead, then this is the central most important fact of life. Don't you agree? There is no thing that competes in terms of importance in our life next to this. If God took the trouble to do this, then we need to take the trouble to give Him our all. God gives His all to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And what He calls for is for us, to, with all of our being, with all of our mind, with all of our heart, with all of our body, with all of our soul, with every breath that we breathe, to give Him praise. He is worthy. Amen? To give Him glory. He is worthy. Amen? To give Him honor. He is worthy. Amen? It means that Jesus shouldn't be an addendum to your life, a little footnote to everything else that you do. He's God Almighty, the Lord here on earth, risen from the dead, and that means He wants to be center. He should be the central theme of the novel that you're writing with your life, the central motif of the symphony that you're playing with your life. Uh, the reason why you get out of bed in the morning, the reason why you go to bed at night, the reason why you live your day on our minds at all times, He, he wants to be the center of what we're about. An acquaintance, casual, occasional tip-your-hat sort of relationship just won't cut it. He's not a good guy. He's the Lord God Almighty and wants to be center stage in our life. He is Lord. Amen. He is worthy. Number three, the resurrection means it changes everything. It means that sin is no longer the issue. It means that sin is no longer the issue because sin has been atoned for. We had an incredible service Friday night. God showed up in a powerful way. See this cross here? It's got all these nails on it. We had a thing where people would come forward and they'd nail their sin uh, to the cross as a confession of their sin and also as a confession of their faith that Jesus died for their sin. And the most significant thing about that cross right now 
Because that's full of nails, but Jesus ain't on it. Uh, hallelujah. Our sin was there. The Bible said that when Jesus died on the cross, God took everything, everything that was written against us, everything that stood against us, everything that separated us from God. We need to understand, and, and we Americans, we, you know, we have a pretty high evaluation of ourselves, so this is hard to accept. But the reality of the situation is that there was this metal vault, as it were, between us and God that was about 17 light years thick. And, and our good works is like some little chisel that we're trying to chisel our way through it, and it's never going to happen. But the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, all the sin of the world, I mean, that entire vault, if you will, every square inch of that vault, every wrong that we'd ever done, every wrong that we ever shall do, it was nailed to the cross. And when it was nailed to the cross, the Bible says it was erased. He paid the price. And the reason he paid the price is because he's in love with you. I don't know why I don't get this at all, but he's madly in love with us. Little puny beings on this little tiny planet, he's madly in love with us. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the suffering of the cross. What joy! There's only pain, there's only anguish, there's only torment, there's only suffering. The joy was the prospect of living eternally with you. The joy was the prospect of forgiving you. He counts that joy. And with every whip that he got, as a part, another chunk of flesh from his back was whipped off, with every crown, every thorn that went into his brow, those three-inch thorns that they stuck on his head, with the piercing of the side and with the whippings and with the scourgings and the, and the mockery and the plucking of the beard and the spitting, and, and with every nail that's driven into his hand and with the nail that's driven through his feet, he's saying it's worth it. I count it joy to go through the suffering because this is what is necessary for us if we're going to be reconciled to the Father. He considers it joy. I don't get that. What the resurrection means? What the resurrection means, it's like a bill coming out of the tomb. And the bill says, paid in full. Paid in full. Paid in full. Paid in full. It's the final thing of the Jesus saying, it is finished. What the resurrection means is that God has taken care of the sin issue, praise God. The, the, the payment has been done. Christ took upon Himself all the sin of the world. And it, as bad as the physical pain would have been, the spiritual pain would have been worse. He takes upon Himself all the sin of the world. Adolf Hitler and Osama bin Laden included. takes upon Himself all the sin of the world. He takes upon Himself all the punishment for, for that sin. Pays for the whole thing. And is rising from the dead. It's God's way of saying, it is done. It is finished. There, It is erased. There now is no obstacle between me and humanity that I love so dearly. Paid in full. Really, really, if we're thinking accurately here, it is not now really primarily sin that sets a person from God. Or that sends a person to hell. It is, it is the lack of a relationship of, with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has paid for that. And if we just say yes to it, then it is ours. He is Lord. He is worthy. Sin is atoned for. And that leads to the fourth thing. The resurrection that we're preaching here this morning is not just a historical fact that happened 1,900 years ago. Isn't that interesting? Or 2,000 years ago? I've got to get with the times. The resurrection, the Bible says, is a reality that when a person accepts it, when a person opens their life to it, they begin to live in it. It's like Jesus, is, he comes out of the tomb, but he's got these long coattails, if you will. And everybody who says yes to Jesus jumps on the coattail, and we now participate in his life. We participate in the resurrection power. Oh, you're looking at me with doubtful faces. You don't believe me. Well, fine, but believe the Bible. Listen to this. 
I mean, the Bible says a lot of radical things, but, 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 but this just about takes the cake. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, I pray that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, this means that God revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know Him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. See, you can have an inheritance here and not know it. Paul's praying that we'll know it. Now look at this. You may know uh, the, the hope to which He's called you and what are the riches of His glorious inheritance among the saints. Everybody say glorious inheritance. No, 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 no. That was like glorious inheritance. Say glorious inheritance. Glorious. Is it glorious? Yes, it's glorious. Amen. You, I'm praying, Paul says, that you may have your eyes opened up so you see what is your glorious inheritance. Now, you've already got it, but, but you don't realize you're not experiencing it. You're not walking in it. You're not savoring it. I'm praying that your eyes of, the, the eyes of your heart will be opened up so you'll see the reality that I'm talking about. And then he says this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power for us who believe? Hallelujah, Hallelujah is right, brother. The immeasurable. You can't measure it. I don't, you, you got a real long ruler. I'm very impressed. It goes around the planet 19 times. I'm really, really impressed. But it doesn't even come close to measuring the greatness of God's power towards us. It's immeasurable. You can't span it. It's, in other words, infinite. The immeasurable power to us who believe. According to the working of His great power. Now, Paul's repeating himself here because he's running out of words. You don't have, he's sensing what I'm sensing right now, and that's that words just don't express it. They don't express what I'm trying to say. So he starts repeating himself. The miserable great power of his power. But now listen to what he says here. God put this power. What power? The power in us who believe. God put this power. Everybody say this power. This power. Is it a secondary power? Is it a different kind of power? Is it a subsidiary power? No, it's the same exact power. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This power He put to work in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. That's the power that's in us. And seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. That power is in us. Far above all rule and authority. Not inches above. Not even a foot above. Not even a country mile above. It's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That same power now is in you. You're thinking about this. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, I guess that pretty much covers it now, doesn't it? That power. Amen. That power, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, when you believe in Jesus Christ, it's not just that God's attitude towards you changes. That, that's true. But he, he doesn't like to pretend that now you're going to be a, you know, you, you, you're all holy and spotless. It is true that we're washed, we're clean, whatever. But he doesn't just do something to us. He does something in us. And what he does in us is that his presence, his own life, comes and dwells within us. And that power is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. What it means is this. The power that got Jesus Christ out of the tomb resides in you right here and right now. The power that conquered sin and death and the grave and Satan himself is in us right here and right now. The same power. Amen? Not an echo, not a whiff, not a little fallout. The same power. We're talking about tomb-busting power here. Tomb-busting power. That's the reality of the Holy Spirit that's inside of every believer. You see, you may be going through a tomb right now, or you really are in a tomb. Maybe you're starting to decompose in this tomb right now. 
But you gotta know, you gotta know that while you can't roll that stone away on your own, there's a power inside of you that can. Maybe you're going through a tomb of a really decomposing marriage right now. But I want you to know that while you can't maybe think your way out of this and you can't strategize your way out of it, you've got a power on the inside. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the resurrecting power of God Almighty that's inside of you. Maybe you're right now in a tomb of confusion. It doesn't matter. I'm here to tell you there's hope because the power to bust out of tombs is inside of you. Maybe you're going through a tomb of emotional despair right now. Maybe you're going through a tomb of a job loss. Maybe you're going through the tomb of failing health. Maybe you're right now in a tomb of despair because you found out that you have cancer or a loved one that you've got has got cancer. Maybe you're going through a tomb of a real messy family situation where your kids aren't talking to you. There's a lot of different kinds of tombs around in the world, and they're all yucky, and they all smell like decomposing bodies, but I want you to know that there isn't a tomb that's too big and no stone that's too heavy that Jesus Christ can't roll away. Amen. And that power is inside of you. The power is inside of you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We need, Paul prays that we begin to see that, know that, experience that. It's possible to have it, have the whole inheritance, and go through life and never cash in on it. Christian life is a matter of learning how to yield more and more to the power that is within you. Now we do die. If the Lord doesn't come back, we're all going to die. Physical death. But here's the fifth point, and I close with this. It's almost like a footnote to everything else. But this life that's in you, it's God's life. The Bible says it's eternal life, and you have it already. Zoe life, it's called in Greek. It's God's own life. It never began, and it never ends. And so what that means is this. The resurrection means that this life that we start living now in Christ It never, ever, ever, ever ends. And the duration of it isn't really the important point, because if this life went on endlessly as it is right now, I wouldn't be too excited. But the life that God has for us, well, this is the life that He always wanted to be, and it will be. It's resurrected life. It's life fellowshipping with the perfect, unsurpassable love and joy of the triune God. It's called the kingdom of God in the Bible. You know, if death ends everything, then life, if death is the end, which is what it looks like on a physical level, if death ends everything, life is the saddest story and the cruelest joke ever told. It really is. Because everything in us, it longs for more than that. If death ends everything, then that means all the hopes and the dreams and aspirations of the human heart are finally frustrated. Life, death mocks us. We're beings that are just out of place in this world. If death ends everything, then the the most you can hope for is to become worm food. Sorry to be so graphic, but it's true. Yeah, we all end up six feet below the ground, you know. We just become fertilizer. And then the sun will be swallowed up in, or the earth will be swallowed up into the sun as it goes into a supernova. And that's what happens to all the suns in the universe. And finally, the universe will run down into a state of heat, death, uh, total equilibrium where there will be no more usable energy. In other words, it will be a total black hole. Did you get all that? Hallelujah, isn't that great news? If death ends everything, then everything's meaningless, everything's pointless, it's going nowhere, and it's empty and futile. Life's a booger and then you die, as that one bumper sticker almost says. But I thank God that what I know this morning, and I feel such freedom right now as I'm saying it, is that that is a lie. That is a lie, folks. It is a lie. That is not the case. No. 
No, you see, the resurrection, if you believe this, it changes absolutely everything. The death, the grim reaper, that is not the end for the believer. It is the beginning. And it's a glorious beginning. Because the Bible says that we shall reign with Him. That's the life He's talking about. Now, where is Jesus? We'll reign with Him. He's far above. I read it a little bit earlier. Far above all dominions and powers and authorities and rulers. Praise God. He's far above all the conflicts. He's far above all the wars. And we're going to reign with Him. He's far above all the tears. He's far above all the bloodshed. And we're going to reign with Him. That's why the Bible dares to say that when the kingdom comes, there'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more disease. There'll be no more wars. There'll be no more racism. There'll be no more hatred. There'll be no more poverty. There'll be no more death. Hallelujah. Then we'll be perfectly exemplifying the life that God always wants us to have. It never, never, never ends. How do you get in on this? How do you how do you participate in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ? God made it so simple. We sang about it a little bit earlier. It's just a matter of saying, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I believe. I believe. I surrender. I surrender. And so I want to give everyone in this auditorium a chance, if you've never done this before, to surrender to Jesus Christ. If you understood what I'm saying, you have to walk out of here either declaring this thing that we're a part of as the biggest evil hoax ever fostered on the planet or bowing your knee to Jesus Christ. There's no neutral ground here. What will it be? And would the saints of God at this point just be praying? People who have already become believers, would you pray? And if you are here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I'm not asking, are you going to be a churchgoer? Have you been a churchgoer? Uh, are, you, are you a relatively good person? Are you a really bad person? I could care of as much about that as I care what, how much your suit costs. <laughs> yeah, I really don't care. It's irrelevant. The only question is this. Do you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ? And if you want to do that here this morning, would you raise your hand real high? And I'm just going to call on you and, and we'll just pray for you. It's a way of acknowledging before God, I need you, Lord. You want this resurrection life? Raise your hand real high. Up here, several people. Wonderful. The Lord just claps his hands in the back there, in the back there, over here. Okay, raise it real high. Oh, several people in the back of the auditorium there. What a beautiful time, Easter morning when he rose from the dead, to say, I want, I want that resurrection life. Praise the Lord. Young lady, oh, over here, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. This is why he died. And with every whip that he took, with every stripe he bore, he was thinking of you and counting it joy that you do what you're doing right now. Anybody else? Just raise your hand very high. Over here, over there, over there. Praise the Lord. Praise, wonderful. All oh, the angels just rejoice in this. One more moment. One more moment. Okay. Would you repeat after me? This prayer, pray it like I'm leading you in a wedding vow. The Lord made it so simple because He doesn't want anyone to not understand it. Um, just pray it, and we'll all pray it with you as a source of support and a reconfession of our faith. It goes like this Heavenly Father, You are Lord, You are God, You are glorious, and You are King. And I confess that I have not lived in a way that acknowledges that. But I want to start. I confess that I am a sinner in need of your grace. But I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sin. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Come into my life. Change me. Give me that resurrection life. And help me live 
for God the rest of my life. I believe in you. I commit my life to you. And I thank you for saving me while I was yet a sinner. In Jesus' name. Amen. Those who raise your hands, I want to welcome you to the kingdom of God. Welcome to the kingdom of God. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Hallelujah. 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 Oh, angels are up there doing a jig. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. If you raised your hand this morning, or even if you didn't raise your hand, but you prayed that prayer for the first time, can I ask you to take one moment, and at the, as we're dismissed, in the back of the auditorium, we've got a table that's got some very important information that we just want to give you. You're going to need help walking the walk. This was the beginning. It's not the end. There's a process now. You need to grow in this. The devil hates what you just did, and so you're going to need some, some encouragement and some wisdom in walking this out. So in the back of the auditorium, I encourage you to get that. Would, would the uh, prayer team come forward, those who are here part of the prayer team? And if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and do that. Otherwise, go forth in the power and the dynamic glory of the risen Lord. He is risen. Hallelujah. God bless you guys. Have Easter.